We're continuing our study through um, the book of the letter to the Ephesians. Today it is Ephesians chapter 3 as Catherine read to us. In 2012, a woman from Sacramento in California um, was arrested for slapping a police officer outside a police station in her county. As she explained afterwards, after she was arrested and what was going on here, uh, she apparently had waited outside this prison for ages to find a policeman she could slap. It didn't matter who it was, so long as it was a policeman. And she slapped him. And she was asked, why? And she responded, so I could go to jail and break my cigarette habit. (laughs) Is there anything you would go to jail for? That you'd be prepared to go to jail, even though you weren't needed to go, necessarily. Maybe something that you believe in so strongly that you're prepared to give up your freedoms and go to jail rather than give up that thing that you believe in. Well, Paul starts off this chapter, chapter 3. Actually, it wasn't in chapters when Paul wrote this. He just wrote one long manuscript. It wasn't until the 1500s that people thought, let's break it up into chapters and verses so we can actually find what we want to look for. So Paul writes this letter, and as he's writing, he starts off with these words in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And there's a break. Most Bibles have a dash after that line to say there's something stopping here. Paul has had had a has just stopped writing and he's moved tack. He's gone into a, a digression. Um, Paul has thought of something as he's writing and it prompts something in his mind and he just starts writing this new thing that wasn't what he was intending to write to begin his, um, this part of, the, of his letter. So he goes on to a tangent, a tangent of 13 verses. If you jump down to verse 14, which we're not going to look at today, Paul starts off that verse, for this reason I kneel before the Father. And then he goes off into this prayer, praying for the Ephesians. That's what he meant to do when he started this letter off, this part of the letter. He was going to start going into a prayer. Something comes into his mind, he stops, and he goes off into this, um, this digression of 13 verses. A digression that we're going to look at this morning. We'll get to that shortly, but I want us to first look at this beginning of his chapter, verse 1. Just to give us some context of what's going on in Paul's mind that prompts him to change tact at this point. Paul says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. Now he comes back to this theme again in verse 13, at the end of this passage we're looking at, where he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. He's aware that the Christians know he's in prison. They're concerned that this father of their church, this man who actually started their church when he was with them in Ephesus, is now in prison. And Paul says to them, don't worry about me. Don't be upset about me. Don't be discouraged. I'm here for you. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's prepared to suffer for them. The Christians in Ephesus 
no matter what the cost. Now, although Paul says here in verse 1 that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, in fact, he was a prisoner of the wicked, despicable, notoriously cruel Roman Emperor Nero. This emperor who murdered his own mother, murdered his first wife, apparently they think murdered his second wife, who made torturing Christians a sport, even burning them as human torches at night in the cities of Rome. Nero was so evil, the Roman Roman Senate actually decided to label him public enemy number one and condemned him to death. By that time, Nero had escaped um, out of Rome. For now, he's very much alive and well. So Paul is in in a very dangerous position, being in the prison of this maniac emperor in Rome. Paul is prepared to pay that price. Paul is prepared to to sit in this dank, dark dungeon in Rome knowing that he'll likely be killed, executed by this madman of an emperor, which actually does happen four years after Paul writes this letter. Why? Why is Paul prepared to suffer in this way? Because he's so convinced that God has called him to something that's so important and so significant. So how did Paul get to this place in prison? A bit of a history lesson here. If you know Acts, you'll see how this is all how it's laid out in Acts. But if we go back to Acts 9, I'm not going to go there today, but just think about Acts 9. You know the story, most likely, of how Paul became a Christian, converted to Christ, um, when, he meets, when, he, when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to Paul in this blinding light. Paul, at that point, was called Saul. A man who had grown up in the Jewish faith, um, schooled in the Torah, the law of, of, of his people, became a Pharisee. There's no way that this Jewish leader could, expect, could, could entertain the idea that Jesus was the Messiah that he said he was. Until his Damascus Road experience, when Christ opened his eyes figuratively because he had scale, um, or so he could see, but also physically because he did act, God put scales on his eyes that he couldn't see, he was blinded. And from that moment on, Paul began preaching Christ, going from city to city around the Mediterranean, preaching Christ. When he was in Jerusalem on one occasion, Paul went to the temple. The religious leaders knew who he was, they recognised him, they knew that what he was teaching, this whole concept of Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah. In their eyes, Paul was a heretic, a troublemaker. And so these religious leaders started a riot. But all the crowd all wound up and the crowd descended on Paul and tried to kill him. The guards in the nearby Roman guards heard this was going, came and rescued Paul, took him back to their fortress, on the steps of this fortress, where Paul asked if he could speak to the people. And Paul gave his testimony, why he was following Jesus, what Jesus had done for him, what it meant to follow him. And the crowd again came into a huge uproar and wanted to mob Paul. And so the Romans took him into the fortress, put him into prison for his own safety. They heard that a a plot was out to kill Paul. 
And so they thought, let's get him out of this fortress, take him to a better place where he's safer in the coastal city of Caesarea. Gathered a, a, a guard of 400 soldiers to protect Saul. Took him by night so that the less chance of, them, of the crowds um, coming in on them and put him in prison for two years in Caesarea. More trials and, and before various authorities happened for Paul over that time until Paul got to the point and said, look, I am innocent. I'm a Roman citizen. I demand to have my trial heard by Nero or by the emperor, Caesar. And so he was sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And the book of Acts recounts how this journey to Rome involved a shipwreck. Paul was, had to make his way to the, uh, swim to the island of Malta for, um, to get onto land, was then continued his journey to Rome and now we find him in prison in Nero's prison cell writing this letter to the Ephesians. So what was so important to Paul that he was prepared to risk his life for these Gentiles, being attacked, being ridiculed, declared a heretic, imprisoned, facing court trial after trial, having to be shipped off to Rome, enduring a shipwreck, swimming for his life to the island of Malta, and now a prison in Nero's cell. Why endure all that? Well, in verse 2, Paul begins to explain why. He says in verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. Paul was prepared to endure this this imprisonment, endure, endure the suffering, endure the threat of death because God had graciously revealed to him a mystery. How many of you enjoy a good mystery? A few hands. Maybe it's a book like this, you know, a classic like Agatha Christie's, um, you know, Murder on the Orange Express or Murder on the Nile, whatever those other ones are. Maybe a more classic one that you see here. Or maybe you enjoy mystery TV series on TV, on Netflix. These are some of the ones that, that Glenda and I enjoy. Vegging out, binge watching. Um, not every night, it's okay. Um, we don't have a bad habit. Um, when we can, watching um, one. Oh, let's watch another one. Oh, should we do one more? I love Netflix. Um, actually, most of those are British um, Britbox. We've um, actually developed an interest in um, Nordic noir, um, Scandinavian thrillers and murders. And we're one of these weird people that like to watch them in the, in the language that they're actually recorded in. We don't like English dubbing. Um, so watch with subtitles. Um, we've become fluent in Danish. One word. Tuck. <laughs> Anyone know what it means? Yeah? What, what is it? Yes. It actually means thanks. So, tuck, thanks. We actually say to each other sometimes, tuck, when we want to say thank you. It's a bit of a weird thing we do. Um, we've just finished two series based in Iceland, um, in Icelandic, and they use the same word, tuck, for thanks. 
Um, but we love the way they make a drama and you sit on the edge of your seat um, waiting to see what happens. Or maybe you like some of those unsolved mysteries. Is Loch Ness Monster really for real? Are the really big cats up in the mountains, up in, in the Victorian Alps? Yes, okay, I heard that one. <laughs> I know we've got some hunters here. What about other mysteries that drive us crazy? Like, where did I leave my car keys? What's this button on my phone? How do you make Zoom work? It's a mystery. Well, these are not the sort of mystery that Paul is talking about here. In the New Testament, the Greek word mosterion means something, or has the idea, that something that is beyond natural knowledge, but has been revealed to us by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery. Not that one. Next one, Jack. This is the mystery that Paul is speaking about here. And Paul says, God in his incredible grace has revealed a mystery to him. In verse 4 he says, In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So God has revealed to Paul a mystery, something that was hidden for generation after generation, but has now been made known. And what is this mystery? It's the revelation of the mystery of Christ. That God was sending his son into the world to redeem the world, to save the world, to ransom us from our sin. That through Christ's work on the cross, Gentile and Jew are now one. Share equally in the riches of being God's inherited heirs, inherited by his children. The revelation that God was going to establish a unique community of people. Men and women, boys and girls who have acknowledged Christ as their saviour. Have come from every tribe, every nation, every socio-economic group and become a new humanity. What we talked about last week. A new community. community called the church. That's what's driving Paul. That's why Paul is prepared to pay the price that he's paying. In this unique community, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the church, all differences are gone. All divisions, all animosities are gone. The walls have come down. Reconciliation has taken place. Where there was alienation, there is now reconciliation. Where there was animosity, there's now community coming together. Where there was division, there is now unity. We are all one. That's why Paul's prepared to be a prisoner of Nero why he's prepared to lay down his life if that's necessary. And now we come to verse 7. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel 
by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the least, sorry, although I am less than the least of all God's Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. God has graciously revealed to Paul a mystery. And God has also graciously given to Paul a ministry. This grace that has been given despite the fact that he was the most despicable of all people. That's how Paul describes himself in these verses. He says he's less than all the least. He adds an N to a Greek word that literally means in English, lester, lester. Like we might say in bad English, worser or badder. That's what Paul's saying here. I am the worst of the least. The least of the least. The lowest of the low. But despite that, God's grace has been given to him to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the mystery of the gospel. Paul knew exactly who he was. Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and had this amazing experience there where Jesus revealed himself to him, Paul was an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the church, going about finding believers, hoarding them together, taking them off to prison, separating families because of their faith, because they believed in Jesus, hunting them down. That was his past. But he's still conscious of his state as being a sinner. He understands the gravity of his own sin. In writing to Timothy, he said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, but by the grace of God, he says, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. Paul knew what he was, but he also understood the amazing wonder of God's grace. It could take someone like him and use him the way that he used Paul. And he could never get over that fact. In spite of all he was, the lowest of the low, he was the recipient of God's grace. That God would choose him to reveal this great mystery to this gospel of Jesus, and that God would give him a message to tell others about it. After his conversion, we see in Acts, Paul devoted the rest of his life travelling around the Mediterranean, preaching, at least when he wasn't locked up in prison. But even then, you know, he was writing letters, telling people about Jesus, encouraging churches that he's established, um, dealing with issues that were going on in their in their in their midst, witnessing even to the guards who were chained to him about who Jesus was. He couldn't stop himself 
proclaiming the boundless riches of Christ. Other translations um, translate that word boundless as unsearchable, incomprehensible, incalculable, immeasurable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, unlimited. We can't explain, we can't box in, or we can't wrap up in a box the riches of God, of Jesus. They, they're just so amazing, so unexplainable. Here are the four richest men in the world as of last week. I think it probably changes the stock market going all over the place, although with their amount it probably doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, you know some of the, most of these people, Elon Musk, um, Bernard Arnold, Arnold um, the world's leading luxury manufacturer, including uh, Louis Vuitton, um, Bezos, the former um, Amazon chairman, CEO, and Adani, an Indian businessman. Incredible wealth shared between these four men. And there are many others that come behind them. But without Christ's inexhaustible, unmeasurable, boundless riches, these billionaires are poor. Poor in spirit. Paul has preached Christ in verse 8. In verse 9, he's also gone around making plain. The word is enlightening, opening people's eyes. He's gone around making plain to everybody that God's eternal plan was that he should bring Christ into the world and in Christ form this multinational, multicultural body of people called the church. Paul's ministry, his message, was to make sure everybody knew about this miracle of Jews and Gentiles coming together, becoming one, the body of Christ, this community of faith. Author Kent Hughes says, it's, um, it's as we live out the mystery of the church, the mystery of this new humanity that we're part of, Jews and Gentiles as one, loving one another, brothers and sisters together, He says that we will win the world for Christ. It's our love for each other that will attract the world, attract our community around us, our neighbours, our workmates, our schoolmates to Jesus Christ. Our call is to go and make disciples of all nations, starting here, out there, further afield. It's the mean by which God brings light to those walking in darkness. And we do that by preaching the word, proclaiming Jesus and his boundless riches and by living out that gospel, showing what it's done for us, what it means to be brothers and sisters, what it means to be part of, of God's family, reconciled together and following Jesus. Notice what Paul says here in, um, in verse 10 of Ephesians 3. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes. God's eternal purpose from the beginning of eternity before our time began till the end of the age when eternity continues going God's plan for human history has always been focused on Christ and his church. 
the gathering of this unique body of people, redeemed by the blood, all one in him. That's God's plan. And there's a plan for this church. Church with a capital C, but us with a small c as well. Through the church, he not only wants to reveal the power of Christ and bringing reconciliation, God's work of reconciling the world through Christ, through through salvation. He also wants to reveal to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms the manifold, the, the multifaceted wisdom of God. Now, Paul is talking here about spiritual beings. He's talking about angels, good angels, angels of light, messengers of God that we see talked about here in the Bible, and bad angels, fallen angels, Satan and his evil henchmen. God wants these powers and authorities to know how wise he is, how his plan is working out through this new body, this new community of Christ's followers, the church. We're being watched. Not just by Big Brother. Not just by East Link as we drive across the city or Victoria Police as we walk down Swanston Street or Metro trains as we stand waiting for a train at Upway. Angels are also watching. They're spectators in the drama of salvation. Spectators in God's plan for the church. In his commentary on Ephesians, John Stott writes, it's through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. We've sung about that today. We've talked about how God's majesty is seen all around us. It's through the new creation, Stott says, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to the angels. It's the old creation that God reveals his glory to humans. It's through the new creation that he reveals his wisdom to angels. Creation shows us God's power, God's glory, God's majesty. The church shows angels God's wisdom, his plan, his purpose being outworked. And as angels watch the church, They see God's plan of redemption, God's plan of of reconciliation working out. God reconciling us to himself through Christ. God reconciling Jews and Gentiles together to each other. God's family loving each other and getting on with each other. The church is the product of God's reconciling work in the world. And one day, it will be God's agent or an agent in, in God's cosmic reconciliation of the universe when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And this mystery that somehow the angels don't get a full grasp of, they're not gods, they're created like us, they don't understand it fully and they're watching the church to see what is happening, how is this working out in this plan that God has for the church. So what's the implication for us today? The church was important to Paul, so much so that he was prepared to go to prison for it. So why is it important for us today? Why is church 
important to us. Well, John Stott says we need to recognise and understand three things about the church. First, the church is central to history. History is his story, God's story. It's not just about prime ministers and and presidents, kings and queens, battles and discoveries, who won the AFL premiership. That's one part of history. It's also about the church, this new humanity made up of people from every nation that has no territorial boundaries confining it to one space. It's about the church that will rule in the universe along with Christ in eternity. And in the midst now of rising tides of Marxist socialism around the world, authoritarian governments, whatever ideology seems to be taking hold and gaining power, only the church will survive. That's our place in history. Second stop says the church is central to the gospel. Ephesians teaches us that the complete gospel involves both the preaching of Christ and the mystery of the church. Christ died and rose again to save us individually as people. But he also did that to create a new humanity, bringing people together as one. The gospel is good news for us the means by our new life in Christ as well as being good news for a new society. That means the church, this local gathering of believers here in Roval is important. We're being watched by the world and now you know we're being watched by angels as well. I hope you sleep tonight okay. When we preach Christ, when we live as the church that God planned, as purposed, people will be drawn to Christ, souls will be one. Third, the church is central to Christian living. Paul ends this passage by coming back to what he started with at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1. At the beginning of the chapter, in verse 13 he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Paul was willing to pay any price to see the church go forward, to grow, to prosper. He saw his suffering in Nero's prison necessary for the sake of the Ephesians, to be their champion, to stand firm for their sake. He's so convinced of the importance of the church that he's prepared to pay any price to see that become a reality. So here's the bottom line for us today. The church is not an option for believers. Now I'm not saying you have to come to church to be a Christian. But think about it this way. If you are married, or if you were married, and you didn't go home to your wife or your husband for weeks on time, at a time, what would your relationship be like? It would be pretty shaky at best. It probably hasn't got much hope of surviving. Attending church and participating in church 
is not an option for Christians. We must be committed to attending church regularly, worshipping together. We must be committed to each other, doing life together, growing together, sharing each other's joys and sorrows and hardships and struggles, supporting each other, encouraging each other. If we only attend church and we've got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning, we don't really feel like coming. We're attending church and taking part in an active part in the church life and community is not a priority. We're robbing Christ, we're robbing the church and we're robbing ourselves. Now, the church on earth is not perfect. Roval isn't perfect because it's made up of imperfect people like me and like you. But God's plan for us as believers for his work in this world, for his purposes for eternity involves the church. God hasn't given up on the church. Church is in decline because of COVID and what we've been through the last couple of years. It's decimated the church, attendance. But God hasn't given up on the church. He's still building it. He's still refining it, making it what he wants it to be. And if God hasn't given up on church, neither should we either. As we continue to reflect, as we go from here later on today, on this second half of Ephesians 3, and I encourage you to go and read it again. Read it in the eyes of what we've been talking about today. It might give you some more understanding. May God give us a greater understanding of the mystery and a grasp of the wonder of this thing called the church and God's plan for it. Join with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your church. This, this once mysterious, now, now glorious institution in which you gather those who have, um, you have redeemed, members of this, this new humanity, this body through which you now reveal to the world and, and to angels the saving, reconciling, transforming work of Christ. Lord God, help us here at Roval to be the church you desire us to be. A church that worships you. A church where we're growing in our relationships with each other. A church that is is caring of each other. A church that is compassionate to those who, who don't know you. Reaching out, declaring who you are in words and revealing you and your wondrous power through our action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.